about what you have just sung. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. There's no other place in human literature that you would know that Jesus loves you except in the words of the Bible. A great theologian from Germany came to the United States many years ago, held a press conference, and one of the reporters asked him, what is the greatest and the most profound statement of theology you have ever heard? And the learned doctor said to that reporter, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's why that's one of my favorite songs. For many, many years in church history, when you talked about the Bible, if you said the Bible was inspired, that was sufficient to say that it was all inspired, that it was without error. Because the word inspired that Paul uses writing to young Timothy when he says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, all of you know that that Greek word is the word theonoustos. It means God-breathed. And if God breathes out a word, it can't be wrong. Well, then we came along a few hundred years ago, and someone decided, well, you know, uh, maybe not all the words are inspired. Maybe not, maybe the words aren't inspired. Maybe just the thoughts. When I entered the ministry in 1974, I know it's a shock. You didn't know I was that old. But anyway, when I entered the ministry in 1974, the, uh, the prevailing notion in our seminaries was something that was called dynamic inspiration. That meant that the thoughts were inspired, but not the words. I always wondered how you could have thoughts without words. I mean, that's a little bit like saying we're going to have mathematics without numbers to me. But anyway, so someone said, okay, then the, the, the Bible is verbally inspired. It means the words are inspired. Well, then, then some other liberal came along and said, well, maybe some of the words are inspired, but not all the words are inspired. And so we added to verbal inspiration, verbal plenary inspiration. Plenary means all of the words are inspired. I really wish the liberals would quit stealing our terminology, to be honest with you. Uh, I, I, I think we just go back to saying the Bible is inspired. It's God-breathed. That means that it is without error, that it is infallible. And we come to a verse here. My text this morning is really verse 24. Look at it carefully. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Every word, every word in that verse is important. Every word is vital. The, the, the apostle is continuing his general outline of the way of salvation. He's been talking about uh, its general characteristics in verse 21 and 22, and then in the second half of verse 22 and 23, uh, he digressed in order to emphasize the distinctiveness or the inclusiveness of this gospel as regards Jew and Gentile. But here he again returns to the general theme, uh, and in a marvelous way. I think this is one of the greatest statements in the Bible. I think Romans chapter 3 verse 24 compares in its profundity to uh, John 3.16. It is a perfect synopsis of the Christian faith. 
And it is important, I think, that we understand it clearly. But in addition to its intrinsic importance, it is of particular importance that we should understand that it is a vital statement in connection with the whole book of Romans. There is a sense, I think, uh, to say that unless we grasp the meaning of verse 24, we cannot go any further. There's no need in going any further unless you understand what he is saying here. I think it's a case of understanding this verse being indispensable to grasping the liberty that we have in the gospel. It is one of those essential statements of Christian faith. And every word is important. And that's why it's important that we believe the scripture to be inspired verbally, plenary. This verse could be divided into three main headings. There is a description or a definition of what salvation is. And then how salvation becomes ours. And third, how it has been possible for God to provide that salvation for us. So we come first to the question, what is salvation? The apostle tells us that when he says we are justified. As I said last week, This is a critically important word. It's very important that you understand what it's saying. And it is that justification is primarily a declaration by God. It means that we are declared by God to be righteous because of what Jesus Christ has done. It is a legal or forensic act. It doesn't mean to make righteous. It doesn't mean when you get saved, you are perfect. It doesn't mean that saved people are perfect. It means that God has declared them righteous. It means that they are striving for perfection. But God regards us as righteous because he looks at us through Jesus Christ. We are, once we become a Christian... We are in Christ, and God looks at us in Christ, and Christ is righteous. And so God declares us to be righteous. It's very, very difficult for a lot of people. There's been a lot of people through the history of the church who, because they are conscious of sin in their life, can't believe that they are in a justified state. But anyone uh, who speaks like that shows that they have no understanding of this great crucial doctrine of justification. Justification actually makes no change in us. It is a declaration by God concerning us. Now, I say that and and people are appalled. What? What? You, you, You mean you can be saved and there's no change? Well, no, you become a new creature, but that's the process of sanctification. That's something entirely different. You know, grace is such that whenever you speak of it in its purest form, somebody's going to accuse you of being an antinomian. Somebody's going to say, well, you don't believe that Christians ought to live a a righteous life. Of course I believe that. But that's not what we're talking about right now. 
Right now we're talking about justification, being declared righteous by God. God pronounces us righteous in Christ. So, notice the apostle used the word are. That's in the present tense. The day of judgment is coming, and in that day we will be declared righteous before God. But that's not what the apostle is saying here. He is asserting that now, in the present, right now, we are declared righteous at the moment that we exercise faith. At the moment that we believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins and was buried and rose again the third day, God declares us to be righteous. And from the moment we believe that, it is true of us. That's why we are exhorted to believe. <laughs> it is it is a great source of rejoicing for believers to know that they are justified right now. That right now we are declared righteous. Uh, that clearly comes out in the story of the great reformer Martin Luther. Remember Martin Luther was a, a Roman monk and he had been taught that there was no such thing as assurance of salvation in this life. You had to depend upon the church and, the, and the, all of the various sacraments and the rites of salvation. But the great light of justification broke through to Luther. And when he understood that justification by faith meant that God declared him righteous at the present time, he was filled with a spirit of rejoicing and had an assurance of his salvation. So salvation, justification, means that God declares us righteous at the moment that we believe, at the moment we exercise faith. So, second matter, how can this salvation become ours? How is it our possession? And this verse says that it is freely given. The apostle is so concerned that we grasp this he states it twice in two words, gift and grace. He'd already been saying this earlier in the epistle. He said it in chapter 1, verse 16, that this was God's way of salvation. He repeats himself here, but he goes further. He tells us that, that salvation comes to us freely and by the grace of God. He's anxious to emphasize that it is a gift. A gift is entirely someone gives you something. You don't owe them anything. And you haven't done anything to earn it. They just gave something to you. God gives us salvation. It's a gift from God. It comes freely. We don't work for it. We don't earn it. If we worked for 10,000 years, we still haven't earned it. If you are a Christian... When a billion years has passed and you have been serving God all of that time, you still will not have earned your salvation. It was given to you as a gift, freely given. Uh, th this word, as a gift, is is interesting word in the Greek. In John's Gospel, chapter 15, and verse 25, Jesus says of the... Uh, uh, 
of the Pharisees, they hated me without a cause. Without a cause, that phrase is the same one translated here as a gift. In other words, there was no reason for them to hate Jesus. None whatsoever. He was perfect. He never harmed anyone. He never did anyone any wrong. He went about healing the sick and raising the dead and causing the lame to walk. He opened the eyes of the blind. He fed thousands of people. And they hated him. There was no reason for it. There's no reason in us that God should give us salvation. None whatsoever. It is all in God. He is the one that is gracious. We are the recipients of it. We've done nothing to deserve the gift of salvation. And there is no cause for it as far as we were concerned. There's no reason God would look at me and give me salvation. He gives it to me freely as a gift. So, what are you relying on for eternal life? Are you relying on the fact that you're an American and that all Americans are Christians? No, they're not. Well, what about, I was, I was born into a Christian home. My mother and daddy were Christians. Now, you remember I told you about them kittens was born in a bread basket, but that didn't make them biscuits. So just being born into a Christian home don't mean you're a Christian. You must receive this gift. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But it comes as a gift, freely, and without our deserving it in any way. It is apart from the law. Paul has already indicated that in verse 21. The law makes demands upon us that have to be met. There's no demands in salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. It is a result of grace. Again, he, he, this, is, this is kind of redundant. It's freely as a gift by grace. Grace is a gift. The word grace is one of the greatest words in the New Testament. It means unmerited favor, kindness shown to someone who is utterly undeserving. And here again, the purely gratuitous manner of salvation, the character of it is brought out. It's something that results from the sole exercise of the love of God. Why are you a Christian and one is, another is not? Purely by grace. The love of God. Not just a gift, he says, but a free gift to those who deserve the exact opposite. For Paul said it is given to us when we were without hope, without God in the world. I think one of the best ways of understanding this great doctrine of grace is to contrast it with the law. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 17, says the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The whole purpose of chapter 4 of Romans, as we shall see, is to bring out this contrast. And he does it again in chapters 5 and 6. The, the, 
the meaning of grace, especially as it is contrasted with the law, is vital to a true understanding of the book of Romans, and indeed to any of the Gospels, to the whole Bible. What characterizes the law or the new dispensation is it is one of grace and not law. doesn't mean there wasn't any grace in the law. There was. God was gracious to give the law to point out to men that they were sinners. The law points out our sin. The law reveals sin, but does not have the power to remove it. Grace, grace gives us the salvation that we are condemned by the law for. The apostle will say in chapter 8, verse 3, what the law could not do, it was weak through the flesh. The law wasn't weak, we were weak. We can't keep the law because we're fallen. We are sinners. The most the law could do was say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That no more by way of recompense could be taken. It couldn't go any further than that. It was not fully redemptive. It could only bring out our sinfulness. We'll see that in great detail in chapters 5, 6, and 7. The law reveals sin. The law could not remove sin. Grace removes sin. Grace allows God to declare us righteous. Grace is the exact opposite of the law. That's why Paul starts the section in verse 21 with, But now. A great change, a great contrast. Grace is the expression of the great love of God, the love in his heart for undeserving sinners. I think that it is possible in many ways to gauge whether you or not you are a believer by your reaction to this word grace. Does it thrill you? I mean, does it just, when you think on it, do you just think, I don't amazing. Somebody should write a song like that. Amazing, it would be a great song, don't you think? But is it not amazing that we have broken God's law over and over and over and Jesus Christ kept it perfectly? That he did not deserve to die? That I deserve to die, but he died in my place. He took the wrath of God that I deserved upon himself, propitiating God's wrath so that I might be the recipient of grace. Grace. What a wonderful, beautiful word. It literally opens up the gates of heaven for a believer to understand grace what it really means to be a Christian notice that we are justified by his grace it is the father who freely gives us grace it is God himself who declares us to be justified it is the righteousness of God that is revealed in this way of salvation that's what makes the gospel something that surpasses 
human understanding and comprehension. It is God Himself and He alone who provides this salvation, this grace to us. The one that we have defied, the one that we have disobeyed, the one that we have provoked, the one that we have rebelled and sinned against. It is His grace that reconciles us to Himself. And so it is obviously the only way of salvation. So having looked at the description of the way of salvation and how it actually comes to us, what is it that makes all of this possible? What is the grounds of God declaring us to be righteous and giving us freely this grace? It's given immediately by the word through. He says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The vital word, it means by means of or in connection with. It's important to grasp that though salvation is given to us as a free gift, it does not happen merely by God releasing a statement or by fiat. Do you know that the salvation of a sinner is greater than the creation of the universe? I mean, when God created the universe, He just spoke. Let there be light. There was light. He just spoke and it happened. But our salvation required that God become a man, contract to the womb of a virgin, be born as a man, live as a man with all of the temptations of the world and live a sinless life and then die a death on the cross Physically, a lot of men have died on a cross. It's not the physical suffering of Jesus you must focus on, but rather that he who knew no sin became sin, that he took upon himself all the sins of those who would believe. So your salvation is greater than creation itself. For God himself had to become a man and die as a man. God's eternal righteousness and justice could not be satisfied apart from the cross. God could not just simply say you're forgiven, for that would violate His holiness. That would violate His justice and His righteousness. God punishes sin, period. God is holy. God punishes sin. He either punishes it in the person of Christ and you receive grace or someday you will stand before the great white throne and he will consign you to eternal damnation where you will be punished for your sin forever. One of the two. But God is just. God is holy. God must punish sin. That's what Paul means when he says that he can be just and the justifier. He remains just because sin is punished. He pours his wrath out on Jesus Christ at the cross. He becomes sin. Sometimes you hear people say, well, the only reason Jesus came to the world was to show us the love of God. No, it's not the only reason. It's 
one reason. It's not the only reason. He also came to show us the holiness of God. That God cannot just simply say you're forgiven. But that the righteous demands of His law must be met. There are some who say, well, God's already done that. Everybody's already forgiven. Jesus died, and so everybody's already forgiven. You don't have to do anything. Just, you know, don't worry. Be happy. <laughs> That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God has done everything in salvation. You must believe. The word through indicates that in an unmistakable manner. It is only by the means of what happened in and through our Lord Jesus Christ, His life of perfect obedience, His sacrificial death and resurrection, all that God has done in Christ is the only thing that makes salvation possible. That's why Jesus Christ is the only way to God. He is the only way to be forgiven. Jesus Christ did not merely come into the world to announce the way of salvation. He came to be the way of salvation. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The whole gospel hangs on the word through. Through. The meaning of our salvation is seen in the word redemption. Again, one of those great New Testament words used ten times in the New Testament. The, the, the root of the word was used by the, the Greeks to refer to the loosing of clothing or of armor. Later it came to mean setting an animal free, <clears throat> but also of loosing the, the bonds of a prisoner. And, and later still it was used for releasing a slave. Uh, it was used as releasing, the releasing of the bonds of a prisoner or a slave by the payment of a ransom. In classical Greek it is always used in that sense. Occasionally the word was used to talk of purchasing or buying something, fields, or food. Put those two meanings together, and redemption can be defined as the purchase of a release by the means of a payment of a ransom price. Redemption carries in it the meaning of ransom, the idea of substitution. If we need to be ransomed away from something, what is it? We need to be ransomed away from our captivity and our slavery to sin. And it is Jesus Christ who provides the ransom price, His own life. He shed His own blood. Man, as a result of sin, not only has become guilty before God, he's also become the slave of sin and of the devil. That's why it's always amusing when someone says, I don't want to be a Christian. I want to give up my freedom. <laughs> you ain't got no freedom. 
You're a slave to sin, to your appetites, to your lust. Those who are not believers are slaves to sin. Jesus made that very clear. And it's clear just looking at the human race. The human race needs to be redeemed. And that redemption is only possible in Jesus Christ. So we come to this great idea of substitution. Jesus Christ came to ransom us, to deliver us, to pay the price to release us from the captivity of sin. Like slaves, we have been made free. That is the doctrine that the apostle is so deeply concerned with here. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ Jesus. That means all the glory goes to Him. We can't boast about it. We can't brag about it. You've been redeemed. I have. How? Through Christ Jesus. He has redeemed me. He has set me free. Were it not for Him, I would still be a slave to sin. Because I like sin. It is only through Jesus Christ that we can be set free. So you see a little more now of the, of the great contrast that I talked about when I preached verse 21 and of the but now and how strong those words are. It is the coming of Jesus Christ that has made all the difference. He rendered full obedience to the law. He paid the price of the ransom. It is, it is Jesus Christ who makes the through he didn't just come to tell us about the love of God. Of course, He does that. But it is, it is His actual coming, living and dying and rising again that provides the payment that is essential for our deliverance from sin and from the wrath of God. It's the only way. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There is no Christianity apart from Jesus Christ. Even, even His coming, though, even His teaching could not have saved us. We had to be ransomed. And He ransomed us on Calvary's hill. If you were going to write a song about it, you might say, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King." The triumphs of His grace. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. It is the only way of salvation. It is the only way to the forgiveness of sin. It is the only way to eternal life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's stand. We're going to have a word of prayer. And then we're going to sing that 